HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Cutting the Curd has been brought to you by Academy Opus Cassius. The Academy Opus Cassius is the cheese industry's unique center for professional development, offering both practical and classroom training in the heart of France. For more information, visit academy-mons.com. That's A-C-A-D-E-M-I-E-M-O-N-S.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby, broadcast live to the Cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to another episode of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby. My co-host is Sophie Schlesinger. Hi, everybody. And today we have Brian Schlatter of Canal Junction Farmstead Cheese on the line with us all the way from Defiance, Ohio. Going to Ohio. (laughs) Are you there, Brian? I am. Cool. Thank you so much for taking time to be on the show. Yeah, well, thanks for the opportunity. I feel like we've been talking about this for a while, so it's great that it's finally happening. Yes. So, um, basic question. Canal Junction Farmstead Cheese. That is an interesting name for a farm. And can you tell us how that ties in with the sort of history of the part of uh, Ohio that you that you guys are based in? Yeah, we're in the northwest uh, corner of Ohio, and um, Ohio uh, had the canal system go through at the turn of the century. And the two canals that we are by are the Wabash Erie Canal, which that one actually runs from New York all the way through, and that's a um, east and west one on the northern northern side of the state. And then we have the Miami Erie Canal, which is a um, north and south that runs on the western side of the state uh, from the Lake Erie down to Cincinnati to the Ohio River. And just a mile and a half north of our farm, the two canals join together at a small town called Junction. So my oldest brother, late one night, through crazy inspiration, came up with the name Canal Junction. It totally makes sense. Yeah. And, and I love it because it pays homage to a part of our country's history that I feel like a lot of people have forgotten about. Um, you know, the canal system was kind of quickly replaced by the railroad, which was uh, quickly replaced again with the, you know, the highway system. And now, um, you know, the canals are kind of relics from a bygone era. They are. 
Um, we still have parts of the canal that you can actually see. Some parts still hold water. There are four actual working canal boats in the state of Ohio. Um, and as far as I know, there is only one working lock system um, that you can take a boat through in Ohio. There is a second lock system that they are wanting to work on, but it needs um, more funding before they can get it going. Wow. Wow. That's super interesting. Um, I know, especially for, you know, goods that were raised on farms and well, all, all goods really. I mean, um, I, I just remember hearing stories about, um, you know, butter and cheese coming down barges on the Erie Canal in New York. And, um, it's really kind of romantic and fascinating to think about, you know, farm products being transported that way. It is, it is. And back, um, in the frontier days, it was one of the easiest. And not only that was the the safest mode of transportation that they had available to. Absolutely. And I imagine quite a bit faster than traveling overland with all that stuff, which would be pretty cumbersome. Yes, it was much, much faster. Um, so I was uh, sort of doing my homework before the show today, and um, your website really stresses that you guys celebrate the art and science of cheesemaking, which seems to be kind of a recurring theme here on Cutting the Curd. People think of cheesemaking as kind of this romantic notion of being on the farm with the animals and turning milk into this beautiful product, but it really has its root in, in science. And so I just wanted to get your take on that. Um, what do you think the ratio is of, of art to science, and does it kind of change from day to day? It changes from day to day. It's, uh, it's, it's about a 75-25, um, and it floats between about, I would say, 55 to 75 in favor of uh, seventy-five, twenty-five. You say seventy-five is science, or seventy-five is art. Seventy-five to science. Uh huh. Yep. Um, and then the twenty-five to art. The art part is um, what we cheesemakers call the feel when we're working with the curd. How does the curd feel? Mm. And does it, you know, is it does it feel a little more fatty, a little more greasy? Um, you know, is there a big uh, weather change that's affected the animals, and what has that done to it? That's the art part to it knowing those feels and that feel it only comes through experience um so there's really you can't put science behind the feel yep Um, Mm, that's a good that's a good uh quote science behind the feel yeah and then um i mean then there's always a science part where we're checking the ph's of the milk uh, you know analyzing the milk um by law we have to check the antibiotics on the milk uh, measuring out the cultures very precisely by grams, the same thing with the run it um, through the milliliters, uh, keeping track of times. There's all those very scientific points that we can take, um, but it, all, it, it tends to always come back to that feel and how does, that fe- how does it feel uh, before you're ready to hoop it. Um, and then another big feel part is also when you're getting ready to cut the curd also. Um, I know for ourselves, since we do um, cooked cheeses and semi-soft cheeses, the feel of the curd right before we cut it is different for the cooked cheeses for the semi-soft cheeses because we want a different um, moisture content in the final cheese. Can you and describe curd, for our listeners what the, what those two feels are? The um, I always explain curd as like a, a bowl of jello. Uh, <laughs> so when you look at a bowl of jello and you shake it, it it's all coagulated together or congealed together in this one mass. And it's very firm. If you've ever stuck your finger in jello, that's a very distinctive feel. Yeah, and you could um, stick a spoon in it almost, you know, and it would yeah. stand up. Yeah, and it'll, and it'll stand up. So what we're actually looking for, uh, for a cooked cheese, for um, like a Gruyere Alpine-style cheese, we're looking for a very soft um, set. 
So we're looking for, if you were to stick a spoon into the curd of an Alpine-style cheese, that spoon would sink down to the bottom. It wouldn't stand up. It's actually very, very fragile at that point. Mm-hmm. Because what we're wanting to do is when we cut that, we're wanting to expel out as much moisture as possible. And the, the uh, softer that you cut the cheese, the more moisture you're going to ex- expel out. So then on the semi-soft cheeses, when we want to trap more moisture into it, that set's going to be much more um, harder. So when you go to cut it, it's going to have more resistance to it when you feel uh, the actual curd. And it's going to retain all that moisture. Yep, it holds all that moisture in. Yeah, yeah. I really like that. That's a great description. For anyone who hasn't made cheese before, yeah. you know, it's kind of a, it's a, always a tricky thing to imagine. You know, what does that curd look like, feel like? And um, that's, I like the jello, the jello description. <laughs> yeah, it was um, the best one I could come up with on the fly. <laughs> yeah, no, well done. Yeah, well done. Um, well, so uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the different types of cheeses. You were saying you make cooked curd cheeses and uncooked curd cheeses. Um, can you kind of give us a rundown of, of what you guys make at Canal Junction? Yes, we do um, uh, eight varieties of cheeses, and we do cooked cheeses and the semi-soft. So we do everything that we do is modeled after a European style or an original recipe that we've created. Um, but my big thing is I like to take the original recipe and then tweak it just a little bit so it gives it the Canal Junction uniqueness. Um, so we do the traditional Swiss. We're from Ohio, so I say you're from Ohio. You have to do Swiss. Um, <laughs> and so why do you say is there is there kind of manufacturers in the in the uh, country? Oh yeah. Um, so so we do the Swiss. Uh, we do a Gruyere style, um, which is very reminiscent of the Gruyere's, the very nutty Alpine um, pasture flavors that come through. Uh, then we do a French mountain cheese called Avondance. Um, and, and give us your I, names as you go through these two, you know, because you say Gruyere style and then, you know, let people know what, what, what do you guys call it uh, when, once it, you know, okay. has your imprimatur on it. Yes, uh, we call it Wabash Erie Canal. I love that one. Um, yeah. So just a side note, all of our cheese names have historical references to our area also. Mm, cool. Um, so that's where the names come from. So, uh, so then the um, that French Mountain is the Abandon style, and that is called Flat Rock. Um, that one's named after a creek just across the road from us there. And I have a friend, she calls it, she goes, it's like a really sweet Swiss. And it's a very, um, it's a mix between a sweet and nutty cheese. Mm. Uh, ours is, and people tend to like it a lot. They're very afraid of it because they're not quite sure. <laughs> they've never heard mm-hmm. of Abandon, so they've never, you know, obviously heard of Flat Rock. But once they get the the uh, product in their mouth, they like the flavors on it. That's right. Um, the, the Swiss that I referenced earlier, that's our Miami Erie Canal. And then we do our take on a Parmesan, except for we use whole milk instead of part skim milk. Mm, okay. Uh, so this cheese, you put it in the refrigerator, it hardens over, it grates nicely, or you leave it out and let it warm up, and you can actually cut it and serve it on a cheese board. Mm, that and we sounds call this delicious. One, um, Burr Oak. Uh, from there, we do a... Uh, Classical Gouda style, we call it Black Swamp Gouda. We are actually in the heart of the Black Swamp, uh, which was encased northwest Ohio was approximately 3 million acres at one time. It's a great name. That, yeah, it's, uh, it sounds dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it can be a little dangerous at times. <laughs> um, it's the cheese that actually varies the most in the flavor profile during the seasons. Um, it really reflects what the cows are eating um, outside. Mm, cool. The most. Um, and then our original lineup that we have, the ones that I've tinkered with and played with and kind of mixed and matched recipes and um, makes together to concoct. Uh, the first one we started with is Lock 21. 
And I describe it as it starts off like a, a young cheddar and then it finishes with this earthy and mushroomy. It's a natural white rind cheese. Uh, so that's where it gets the earthy and mushroomy from. But then the cheddar part of it is actually um, based upon a Monterey Jack recipe at the beginning. Hmm. So it gets that cheddar uh, flavor to it right at the beginning, then it finishes with the um, earthy, mushroomy, very kind of like camembert brie style, those white-rinded cheeses. And what then about the, the... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Nope. Then the, the next, this uh, second original recipe that we have is called Charlotte. It's the one that I'm the most proud of, the one that I've put the most work into. It was uh, an inspiration from... A couple different things. One is I've had people ask me about stinky cheeses. When are you going to make stinky cheeses? Um, and we are actually a half an hour north of Van Wert, Ohio, where they made Liederkranz originally in the U.S. Oh, that's Aww. great. That's such a classic. I feel like yes. I first learned about Liederkranz when I was living at Cato Corner Farm back in 2003. I was making cheese up there. And um, Liz, the owner, the owner of the farm, would talk about her grandfather eating Liederkranz with onions. And I was like, ooh, <laughs> that is just the stinky double whammy right there. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so uh, to kind of play homage to that and then also um, people asking me, I started just kind of playing around a little bit with uh, a Westrine, and then I had the opportunity at the Vermont Institute for Artisan Cheese to take the um, international course, the Irish Westrine cheeses, and uh, Jana Ferguson from Gubin came over and instructed us in making her Gubin cheese. And through that connection, then I was actually able to take four weeks and intern with um, the team over at Gubin in Ireland and through that experience, uh, we have fine-tuned and developed our Westrain cheese, Charlotte. It's a semi-soft um, cheese. It starts off very mild, buttery, creamy at the beginning. And then because we wash it, you get a little of that um, washed funk. But we have a very distinctive toasted peanut uh, flavor that comes through our Westrain cheeses. Mm, that sounds delicious. And you yeah. guys won an award for this one at the Good Food Awards this year, right? Uh, yes, in 2000, actually 2012, uh, we were a Good Food Award recipient for that one. Congrats. Yeah, that's Thank awesome. You. Thank you. So, And then uh, the third original that we have, which is kind of uh, just another play on of what we were doing before, um, we take the Charlotte recipe and what we do is we add um, the white bloomy rind to it. So then it, it tastes very much like the Charlotte at the beginning, but it finishes with those earthy and mushroomy finishes. That there's Good. so many, there's so much nuance, you know, yeah. it's, um, and I love listening to you describe your cheeses because I feel like, um, that's a real hallmark of American cheese making that willingness to kind of, um, experiment and to try different combinations of styles of cheese making styles of rinds. Um, and this kind of innovation, I feel like is is very uniquely, um, you know, new world, I would say, um, you know, at this, at this point in time. So, yes. You know, you're a young guy. How did you learn about um, making all these different types of cheeses, and how did you learn the science? Um, I feel like it's it's not an easy thing. No, I um, I got into cheese making when I was in high school. I showed dairy goats through 4-H and FFA, um, and I got a cheese making kit at an auction. Um, so I just tinkered around with it. But when I actually got into cheese making as a viable career, um, I did some internships, and then I also started taking classes at the Vermont Institute for Artists and Cheese. They offered one-week short courses in cheesemaking that were very thorough and in-depth. Um, and I've taken both the beginning and advanced certification from there, plus some of their international courses. And then from that, since there's no, uh, as far as I'm uh, aware of, there's no um, college program in specifically in cheesemaking in the U.S., 
it's a lot of going online, looking for reference materials, reference books, and getting them and then just reading them cover to cover as kind of a self-study course uh, versus sitting in a classroom. And if you had to recommend some of those books to our listeners, which ones would you recommend? Because I feel like a lot of people are probably yeah. like you and want good references. Um, so, yeah, what are some of your favorites? Um, the If you're looking at just the technical side of cheese making, the one that's really good that encompasses what I learned up at uh, up in Vermont is the American Farmstead Cheese Book by Paul Kingstead, Dr. Paul Kingstead. Mm-hmm. Um, that basically walks through everything that they taught us up in class. It walks you through the history, a little history of cheese, the milk chemistry behind cheese, the chemistry behind cheese, um, how to, like the eight steps, the eight manufacturing steps of cheese, um, and then there is a little bit of business information in the back of it too uh, for people who are looking to get up and running as a um, career option. And then uh, from there... um, uh, R. Scott has a book. Oh, I forget what it's called. It's a it's a little black book. They actually have to print it when you order it. And it R. Scott is the author's yeah. name. R. Scott, I believe. Um, cool. I'm not familiar with and, that one. And uh, he, that book in the back of that book, it has a lot of actual recipes for cheese making, and that's um, those are some of the recipe recipes that I reference when I go um, looking through. Um, and then for anyone actually thinking about starting in, uh, a cheese business, the American Farmstead... Um, Creamery uh, Advisor? Yes, Creamery Advisor. Thank you. <laughs> Gianna Cleese really Caldwell. Really She's great. Yeah. She was, Gianna Cleese was on our show maybe about a year ago, I want to say. Yeah. Okay. Um, talking about her, her new book, um, uh, which was the yeah sort of successor to the Farmstead Creamery Advisor. Um, yeah. So that's awesome. Yeah, her books her books are great. Yeah, and we've also had Paul Kinsett on the show, for, which for our listeners, if you haven't heard that episode, de- definitely check out our archives, archives but he's another great um, scholar and, and writer who teaches a lot at FIAC. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. This, um, just back to the, the book, it's called The Cheese Making Practice or Cheese Making Practice by um, Reg Scott and then our Richard Kenneth Robinson. If you just Google... Our Scott Cheesebook, it comes up. <laughs> Our Scott Cheesebook, I love it. Um, all right, well, we're going to take a very short break, but when we come back, we're going to talk more about uh, your cheesemaking practice on the farm, um, affinage, and uh, some other fun stuff. So stay with us on Cutting the Curd. Sounds great. This song is called Four of Seven by Jack Inslee on heritageradionetwork.org.
The Academy Opus Cassius is the cheese industry's unique center for professional development, offering both practical and classroom training for cheese professionals ready to move their careers to the next level. When you come to learn at the Academy, we instill our love for cheese, our expertise, and our experience so that you can support artisanal producers, impeccably care for the fine cheeses you carry, and serve your customers with skill and enthusiasm. We integrate hands-on practice, formal instruction, and classroom discussion in all of our courses. The Academy's programs are offered at the Mons Fromagerie in the heart of France, where cheese undergoes affinage and cheeses are received, prepared, and shipped. Several Mons retail shops are nearby. The surrounding countryside is the home to producers whose excellent cheeses are cared for by the Mons team. The Mons cheese business has more than 50 years' experience caring for and teaching about cheese in France, a country known as the source of some of the world's greatest cheeses, deepest cheese tradition, and the highest level of technological research and rigor in cheese making and ripening. The Academy has been recognized by the American Cheese Society as the first approved education center for those preparing for the certified cheese professional exam. Enroll now for Essential Foundations for Cheese Professionals or Affinage, the Art and Science of Maturing Cheese. For more information, visit at www.academy-mons.com That's A-C-A-D-E-M-I-E-M-O-N-S.com Certified Cheese Professional is a registered trademark of the American Cheese Society. And we are back on Cutting the Curd. You are listening to the Heritage Radio Network. You can check out the website at heritageradionetwork.org. And uh, my name is Ann Saxelby. I'm your host. Sophie Schlesinger is my co-host. And today our guest is Brian Schlatter, who is with Canal Junction Farmstead Cheese in Defiance, Ohio. Um, so, Brian, I want to lead this segment off, actually. Um, I, I said before the break I wanted to talk about affinage, which I do, but I, I kind of lied. Because I was looking at your blog, and um, I really, really liked one of your postings. And so I'm going to start with a quote from that, which is actually from uh, The Long Winter by Laura Ingalls Wilder. And the quote is simply, what would the old Indian say to us today? Um, and this is a quote about weather. Um, and I feel like weather is something that people who aren't farmers don't think about. And yep. so let's talk about the weather and cheese and, and how that influences what, you're, what you do and, when you, and your craft. Oh, my. <laughs> <That's> a, <laughs> that can be a very loaded question. Um, it has a huge impact on it, uh, especially for us here in the Midwest. Um, if you've ever lived in the Midwest, you know, you know, the joke is in Ohio, wait five minutes and the weather will change. Uh, it can be very true at times. So we have periods of very dry um, and very low humidity, and then we also have periods of very moist and very high humidity. Uh, so getting that and in, in, tying into the affinage, that creates a, a very big problem because when it's low humidity, the cheeses need to remain at 90 to 95% humidity. So we're adding a lot of humidity to the aging rooms, but then the, the payoff is, is when the humidity is high outside and it's nice and moist out, we don't have to add quite as much humidity to that. So that's on the cheese aging side. Um, the summers can get up uh, in, the night, in the hundreds around here, which creates a, an issue with the cooling because we need to keep the cheeses between, preferably between 50 and 55. Um, during the summer times, we'll let it creep up to 60 just because it does max out our cooling systems. Um, and once we get around there, then the cheeses do age out faster, and we have to be more conscious of what's happening inside the cheese itself. And then from there, do we need to pull it out of the aging room, put it into the cooler to stop the uh, aging process? One of the biggest 
um, things with the weather that we have is since we are 100% grass-fed during our growing season, we don't feed any grains. Mm, yeah. The, the flavors of the melt change so rapidly and so quickly. Hmm. And um, a study done shows that what a cow smells 20 minutes later can be detected as a, um, a taste detection through her milk. Wow, wow, that's so cool. That's crazy. Yeah, so, so during, you know, during the spring um, and, and fall, when the weather is much more temperate out um, and the grasses are doing well, we get really nice, um, high-quality milk, and the cheeses taste great. But as we go into summer, and especially, we've had a, a, a very good spring this year, and we haven't had any too terrible many hot days, but I'm waiting for that switch to turn to hot here in a little bit and then have to alter uh, the cheese-making again. But the one thing is, is when we start going into summer, it gets hot out, and cows, when it gets hot out, they stand around um, in a big group, and they're smelling everything that is around them. Um, you know, that does include, I mean, it's not going to sound too appealing, but the you know, Go for it. height is <laughs> the cow next to them. Yeah. Um, and and um, it's going to be more gamey. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and that comes through the that comes through the through the milk. Now it comes through the milk more so in some cheeses uh, and some varieties of cheese more than others. Like the Gouda is very susceptible to it. We used to make a cheddar cheese, and if we made a cheddar cheese in um, late June, July, or August, and then went to age it out. It was very uh, interesting in its flavor profile, <laughs> <laughs> to, put, to put it mildly. Um, and now I really like that we're talking about this because we talk so much about land affecting taste, you know, terroir. And we talk a lot about weather affecting the make process, but we don't talk as much about weather affecting taste. So I think that's a really important point. Definitely. Yeah. And that's yeah, not just the, what the, the weather, cows are... Uh, because when it gets hot out, it, the, the cows, they bunch up together. Ours do anyhow. They bunch up together. Um, and then what they're, breath, you know, what they're breathing in through their, their nose um, is coming through the milk then. Which is so interesting because you would think if it got hot out, they would want to stay away from each other. You yeah. know, they'd be yeah. like, oh, you yeah. guys are we, hot we too. Like, Get like out of here. We question, question ourselves on, on why, they, why they do that. Um, and we're not quite sure why they do that yet. So mm. There's got to be a reason, though. To that one. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So this year, um, you were saying, have you had a good a good season so far in terms of um, you know enough rain, enough grass? Yeah, we've had we had a um, actually kind of a, a cool wet spring, and for us that's fine. We don't uh, put any row crops out, so we have no corn or soybeans or wheat or anything like that. So for the grasses, the grasses have done good. The cows have loved it because it's cows will live better at fifty five degrees than they will at sixty five seventy degrees. Right. Uh, so they've been taking full advantage of it. The grasses have been growing. Uh, the pastures have been growing very well for us. Um, so and have we're you seen... just now starting to cut hay, uh, which is a little bit later than what we typically cut hay. But since because of the rains, we're um, pushed back a little bit. But we're we're not complaining compared to last year. This time we were actually out of uh, pasture already wow. because of the drought and the heat. Hmm. Yeah, it's so variable. So. Um, can you explain to every, all of our listeners, um, cutting hay, you know, you just say it like it's kind of an easy thing, but cutting hay is like super stressful, yeah. right? I mean, you've got to have like a, can you explain about when, you, how you prepare and how the weather has to be and what the whole process is? Yes. Well, 
first of all, you, you're always checking the weather. Um, you want about three to four days of clear, sunny skies with no chance of precipitation whatsoever because you don't want that hay to get uh, rained on because once it gets rained on, it takes longer to dry, and then there's also the potential for molds to grow, and you don't want those molds to grow because if the mold grows in the hay, and the cows can get that, the cows can actually get sick from that, or that um, can get passed in through the milk then and cause issues in the cheese vat. Hmm. Wow. Um, so cutting hay for us, well, you, you cut the hay, which is very much like mowing a lawn, except for we have a much bigger um, setup. We have the tractor and the, what we call the mower, the uh, hay vine, and... Once that's cut, then it sets until it dries, anywhere from two to three days. Once you've determined that it's dried enough, and again, this is kind of an art thing, the feel of it, uh, we go in with a rake. So if you can imagine taking your, your leaf rake and having a big, long string of them um, that are on uh, spindles that spin around and around and around, so what we do is we take these, the swaths of hay and we rake them up into what we call a windrow then. So we get these big, fluffy, long, continuous um, rows of the hay. Then we come through with a round baler and we bale it up. And then after it's been baled, uh, we come back through again with a tractor and a loader and the uh, bale wagon, pick them up off the field because we don't want to leave them there because the cows are going to come back onto the field again. And if you don't pull them off the field, the cows will actually ruin the hay bale because they like to play with them. Uh And we want to keep those for the winter feed. So then we we take them up and we put them um, into the storage area. And then during the wintertime is when we feed them to the cows. That's a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. And all all on the weather. Yeah. (laughs) It is. Um. Well, so that uh, so that I'm I'm glad to hear that this year has been better than last year. I know last year, especially yeah, in the Midwest, there were some really devastating droughts. So it's yeah. nice that this year you've gotten a little bit of a break for sure. Yes, it has been. Um, so let's talk a little bit about affinage. Um, you were even saying, you know, the weather will influence how long you age a cheese, where you age a cheese. Um, what is your sort of philosophy um, on affinage and how do you like to treat these different styles of cheese? And I guess, yeah, so how do you like to treat the different wheels of cheese? And then what's the age range that you sell your cheeses in? Okay, um, the age range is we go from about 60 to 90 days on those semi-soft cheeses, and I like to get those out. Although I did learn that this winter, um, the Charlotte aged out to six months. I have a very interesting crowd of people who enjoy it at that age. <laughs> um, I never intended for it to be an aged cheese, but people like the flavors that are coming off of it then. Um, so we have that, and then we have uh, the aged cheeses, which are six to nine months is the earliest we'll let them out, and we are starting to hold cheeses to 12 months. We are limited on our aging space right now. Um, so aging things out to 12 months, uh, we just do very small quantities of that. So what we do is we repurposed um, refrigerated delivery trucks. So the short trucks that you see running around um, towns, typically by the distributors, um, dropping off at restaurants and groceries and um, food institutions. We, the trucks, they, a lot of times those are on lease. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. The, the trucks come off a lease and a dealer somewhere has them. Uh, fortunately for us, about 45 minutes from us, there's a dealer who deals with a distrib- uh, distribution company who gets these trucks in. So what we do is we actually we just buy the box from them. They take <laughs> the cooling great. unit out. 
We bring the truck in the box home. We um, cut the box off of the truck. It's held on by big U-bolts. We pull the box off of the truck, and we take the truck back to the um, uh, to the dealership, and he sells the truck. We have the box. So what we've done then from there is the boxes on the interior are um, dairy panel, dairy glass panel, so it's the, the waterproof panel that's approved, and you can wash it down. And then the floor is aluminum, which you can just use the regular floor, which is it works okay, but the gas buildup in the, in the uh, aging rooms will actually start eating the aluminum out a little bit. Yeah. And then not only that, keeping the humidity up with just the aluminum floor is very hard. So we uh, have the suggestion of just pouring four inches of raw concrete and not sealing it or anything into the bottom of the boxes. And raw concrete, if it's not sealed, acts as a huge sponge. It just absorbs water. So what we do then is we just dump water over top of this, over top of the concrete every day as many times as we need to, and that keeps our humidity where we need it at. That's really, uh, that's really resourceful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, for the cooling system, we recirculate uh, chilled water um, through a tube system. And then during the summertime, when uh, the weather gets really hot, we put a little fan on top of these tubes, and it pulls the air across the the cold coils, uh, therefore creating a cooling from that. Then the actual aging of the cheeses, um, we have one box that has the Charlot, the Lot 21, and the Mule Skinner in it. Um, we don't have enough to keep the blooming rinds versus the washed rinds out, but since we're washing the washed rinds every uh, three days a week, we're able to control the mold growth on them there and then uh, the Bloomy Rhymes, they also need the higher humidity. So those two can live together in, in harmoniously happy, and yeah. all set up without having too many issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the uh, the um, other cheeses, the Wabash, the Miami, uh, the Flat Rock, the Baroque, and the Black Slump Gouda, those are all aged then in our other two aging rooms. And the Wabash, um, it gets put on uh, the Wabash and the Flat Rock. What we do is we put them on boards. Um, but I was told my boards are actually too smooth and they don't allow oxygen or the airflow to go around them. So we take a coarse draining mat, put that on the board, and then stick the cheeses on that. And we go in twice a week and we um, brush those with a uh, the the brine solution. Mm. Um, and then the bur oak, that cheese sets um, on boards and it just gets flipped. So it grows a natural rind. We wipe those down, brush them off occasionally, and then right before we sell them, we vacuum them off. Um, and since it's a, a longer aged cheese, it takes a, it, we let it at a little drier temperature, so it actually dries the cheese out more to make it a little more harder grading style. Okay. And um, it intensifies the flavor into it, and then also leaving the rind natural without putting any oil on it or uh, brine washing it imparts very interesting flavors. And those flavors have be- have become characteristic of it, and people expect those flavors. Definitely, no. I'm a big fan of natural rind cheeses. I mean, people always ask, you know, you know, can I eat the rind? Should I eat the rind? And I guess at, at a certain point, you know, when it becomes a little bit too aged, you know, it's a little, um, you know, it can just be a little bit uh, tough and sort of gritty. But the yeah. flavors that it imparts cannot be denied. There, it's really, uh, it's really a special. Uh, yes. a special thing. Um, yep. So you said you have a, an Affineurs limited edition cheese program. What's that all about? And, and how, uh, how do people sort of get those cheeses? 
Uh, that is, it's kind of my catch-all category. <laughs> so, for example, let's say during the summertime we make a batch of Wabash Erie Canal, and for whatever reason, the flavor is off. The flavor profile is off. So what we'll do is we'll age that out a little longer, uh-huh. and we put it into the Affiner's Limited Edition category. And then people so they who are like those strong, wild that cheeses. We do not intentionally try to produce. Um, and it's our catch-all category. So if you're at our farmer's markets in Ohio, you can find them there. But if you're not, uh, you just purchase them online. Oh, that's great. And then your, um, your website, canaljunctioncheese.com. So if people want to check it out online, that's the, that's the place to get it. And there's a lot of great information about the farm um, as well. So um, that, uh, that's fantastic. Well, I feel like, you know, there's, there's a lot of cheeses out there. That um, that fall into that category, you know, that are kind of happy accidents once in a once in a blue moon, and it's nice to be able to take advantage of that, especially um, if you're out of the range of your local farmers markets. Um, yeah. And in general, where can people find your cheeses? Um, I know we we sell uh, the Wabash Dairy Canal at yep. our shop, which I really um, really love. Um, and you're available at farmers markets in Ohio and any other places that our listeners can look out for your cheeses. Um, Ohio and the Midwest is our biggest area, but we are on coast to coast. Thanks to Anne. We, uh, she was my first East Coast. All shop. right. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, just look online, uh, on our website. We have the, a good listing of where, where we are all at. Um, and we are primarily at cheese shops, uh, smaller cheese shops. We are starting to work through some distributors. So you will start seeing us at some of the restaurants around town that have nice cheese boards or use good cheeses in their cooking. Um, or we are online. Uh, you can order through us, and then um, I'm trying to uh, know we're the only place you can order online from. <laughs> and um, that's great. That's a good. That's a yeah. good selection. I was. Yeah. Gonna, yeah. And so, well, I, and I would encourage everybody to look out for these cheeses. They're really special. And um, we certainly are loving that Wabash Erie Canal. Um, and uh, actually, it's uh, we are out of time on today's show, yeah. which is un- always unfortunate because there's so much more to talk about. But um, thank you so much for taking time out to be on the show and for educating us on the art and science of cheesemaking. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And uh, stick with us next week, uh, every Friday at 4 p.m. You can tune in to another episode of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.